Father, your word is, is a rock, it's solid. Your, your word is also uh, sure like the rain, it comes to fulfill its purpose and to give growth. So let me speak from your word today, Lord, and let us hear in order that we may uh, be full of your spirit in order to do it and to follow your word. Through Jesus Christ we pray, amen. <clears throat> and for those who weren't here uh, the last few weeks at the 9.30, I just want to kind of recapitulate some of the messages that we talked about. First is that the marriage is a mirror of the, and it's a covenant mirror of the eternal covenant that God has in himself with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's primarily an image, marriage is an image that we see on earth between Christ and the church. And so marriage is supposed to portray the gospel. That is one of the fundamental purposes of marriage on earth. And, and we see that in the first couple chapters of Genesis and the last couple chapters of Revelation. And so we talked, and we're, I was pretty firm about that, these principles in marriage you have to first apply to yourself. You can't go home and say, I heard that you were supposed to do this, and now do it. Uh, if you don't, first apply that to yourself, and you don't uh, seek to the Lord and, and change in yourself, then your marriage isn't going to get any better. Your marriage, uh, I guarantee that. Um, we, could, we can't guarantee that if you follow the principles of marriage, that your marriage will actually get better. If you're both covenant people of the Lord, and you both do it, then I could guarantee that it will. But uh, there are cases where even Scripture talks about this, that if someone comes to the Lord, and you're, there's, I don't, we don't have any situations here, but it's a, it's a possibility, in, and it happens all the time in the world, that uh, one spouse comes to the Lord, and their other spouse hates that. Uh, you can see that in aggressive uh, Muslim cultures where the spouse has to try to hide being uh, converted to Christianity in fear for their, for their life, essentially. And so what we, could, what we can guarantee is that if you follow the principles uh, listed in Scripture, it will, and you seek to obey them, it will draw you closer to the Lord. And so the principles first have to be established in yourself. You should be seeking first to apply these to yourself and not primarily to your spouse. And so today we're going to talk a little bit more about covenant. You can, we're not going to talk about the uh, aspects of every biblical covenant. You can see Greg's sermon series on that. What I'm going to do is kind of summarize a covenant is my life for yours. And we want to see that in the marriage covenant is that your primary role that God's calling you to do is to give your life to your spouse. And in return, they give their life. And when they give their life in return, you give your life. And it's constantly your goal and your calling is to give yourself to your spouse. <clears throat> and so if you were to look in some kind of Christian dictionary, uh, if they have those, you might describe a covenant as a solemn bond, sovereignly administered with attending blessings and curses. That is maybe the most simple, basic way to describe a covenant. But what we want to get at first is that it's way more than a contract. Uh, we've talked a lot about Susan Tree covenants and how they, there's a, a sovereign and a vassal and how it in, imposes and there's always blessings and curses and there's covenant sanctions uh, and there's covenant succession and, and all of that applies to the marriage covenant. And so all of those aspects are there. But what we want to get at first is 
we don't live in a covenantal society who, who in, in our Western way of thinking, we don't think in terms of covenant. We think in terms of contract. And so <clears throat> a covenant, um, well, we'll just say a, a contract has stipulations. It has blessings and curses. It has things laid out. If you don't fulfill your end, then I'm going to do this. If you don't do this, then I'm going to do this. And it's constantly a give and take, and you're examining the other to see if, you're, if they're fulfilling their end of the bargain or not. And if they don't fulfill their end of the bargain, then they're breaching their contract, and you don't have to fulfill your end. And that's not what a covenant is. And so we have it embedded in, in our culture. We're more contractual. And so uh, I lease houses and properties uh, to people, and I manage uh, several properties for other owners where I have to get people on leases, and there's clear things laid out where... Um, we, we sit down and we go over the lease agreement and the contract and we say, this is what you have to do. And I'm making it very clear. This is your end of the bargain. And a lot of it has to do with paying rent. <laughs> and if you don't pay rent, and I could tell you exactly what day we're going to file an eviction. And don't be surprised when you get one because it's, the, it's, the, it's that time of the month. And if you call me and ask me, like, hey, can I get some more time? It's, well, let's look at the contract. What, is it, what does it say? Does it say you get more time? I might go and be gracious, but, or the owner of the property might, but it's laid out in the contract. If you don't fulfill your end, I'm not going to fulfill my end. And you're not obligated to fulfill your end in a contract when the other party doesn't. Right? You see, in, a, in the business world, if you pay for a service, they're obligated to give you that service or that good. If you don't pay, they're not obligated. But it's not so in a contract. I'm sorry, it's not so in a covenant. And especially in the marriage covenant, the, if, I, if we get one thing across today, it's that you are obligated to give your life all the time, regardless if the other person fulfills their end or not. You don't get to nullify your end of the deal because they didn't pull through. And I can guarantee you in a marriage, they're not going to pull through 100% of the time. So you can get prepared if, if you've been married for two, three, four, five, ten years plus, and you're just now finding that out. That's amazing because you must have a really good marriage. But most people find that out like on their honeymoon, <clears throat> that, that your spouse isn't going to be fulfilling their end 100% of the time. And so marriage isn't a contract. It's a covenant where both parties are continually giving of themselves, my life for yours. And so... Uh, we see that in Matthew 19. We're gonna, so there's going to be, and through the whole series, we're going to go back to several prominent scriptures on marriage, and a lot of those come from the teaching of our Lord. Matthew 19, 6 through 9, our Lord says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And so the disciples found that especially troubling. They're like, if this is the case, isn't it better just to remain single your whole life? Essentially saying, if we can't divorce our wives for any reason, is it just better to remain unmarried? 
Uh, and Jesus is like, that's not what I was saying. <laughs> He's saying that's an especially hard teaching. There are people providentially that the Lord assigns to be single, but that's not the, the norm, right? But the disciples were like dumbfounded, like, is this, that's a really hard teaching that you have to remain married to your spouse. Some people today still find that a, a troubling teaching, right? That's why, our, that's why marriage in the West is on such a steady decline, is because they don't first come to the table with, I'm going to give myself first. I'm going to lay down my life first. They, we see it as contractual. If you don't fulfill your end, I'm out, right? But our Lord goes even farther to say that if you divorce your wife except for sexual immorality, you are committing adultery. He's saying that's, that's fornication. That's a form of, uh, of sexual sin, that if you divorce except for sexual morality and marry another, that you're committing adultery. And even uh, in, this is Matthew 19, but he says the same thing in Matthew 5. It says, uh, you can make her to commit adultery, and if you marry a divorced woman, now you're committing adultery, right? Uh, that's because the heart of the covenant is my life for yours. You can't just willy-nilly end a covenant. You don't get to say, because what God has joined together, let not man separate. And so, again, in the marriage covenant, you are called to give yourself. And so, what I think, well, I should say what I see, what I hear through testimony is, um, or you may experience this, that you get these little marriage quibbles. They're like, I'll just give a hypothetical example that uh, you might have seen, you might have experienced, you might have heard other people, you know. Man gets home from work, he's worked a hard day, had a frustrating day with his boss or something, or he's just tired, and the dishes aren't done, and he says, and he grumbles under his breath, oh, I thought you were going to, I thought I asked you to get the dishes done. And the wife says, yeah, I thought you were going to fold the laundry. Then he says, well, dinner's not even ready. None of those are related, but it goes back and forth. And so it starts with an offense. Well, I thought you were going to do this. I wanted you to do this. You didn't do it. And then she answers back. You said you were going to do this. You didn't do it. And he says, but you didn't do this. And so there are quibbles about you didn't fulfill your end. Right? And, uh, uh, and you may have heard testimonies of, well, it's just like 10 years later. The man thinks everything's okay because we're still together. We're still working it out. And the wife's like, we're not Okay. <laughs> Right, because men and women are, are created differently, and and uh, men seem to think uh, on one track. If if we're still living together, we're, we're good. Uh, but it's because the woman wants more than just chores around the house done. She wants the man to spend time with him, to talk to him. She doesn't necessarily care as much if the dishes get done, but she cares if her husband sits down and and pays attention to her. Right, because they're created differently. But those, those quibbles that go on for, and they might go on for years, and then somehow they're like, I don't know how we got to this point. Right? I don't know how we got to the point where we need marriage counseling and, and our, our marriage is falling apart. We've just had these little quibbles and offenses every day for 13 years, and somehow we got here. Right? But it always starts with, a, with, a, with an offense of somebody, and then it's this, this back and forth. And so essentially what each spouse is doing is saying, I want you to give yourself more instead of I'm going to hold myself to give, give myself more. 
And so those arguments come about by uh, complaining or an offense because the other spouse uh, or you think the other spouse isn't giving themselves, right? Ought they to give themselves? Yes. But are you first looking at your own life, at your own, own station, and are you giving yourself first? And so in the following weeks, um, uh, we'll look at different scriptural distinctives between the husband and the wife and, and how the husband gives himself is different than how a wife gives herself. But the primary principle for both spouses is my life for yours. You, I will give you my life. You will give me your life. And so you, you have the standpoint of I promise to give you my life and in return you'll give me yours and the other spouse says the same. And so again, your primary role is to give your life. And so you, you don't get to say you get to withhold your life or anything from your spouse uh, because they have withheld theirs. And so this isn't a, in Genesis 15, we see when God is making a covenant with, with Abram and he puts him to sleep, Abram slays the, the cattle and the animals and, and separates them and, and it's this bloody trail and God calls him to make this covenant and he's waiting around so long that he, he falls asleep and, and God passes through the animals and fulfills the covenants uh, in, in a flaming pot and, and so God goes through and initiates that covenant first. He is our primary example and, and largely an example for husbands in that regard is that he takes the covenant initiation. Abraham wasn't like even awake. He wasn't even ready. I don't know if somebody had to be awake to, to record it. Um, but God didn't say, God wasn't looking down and saying, Abram, you, you've fallen asleep. Like, what are you doing? We'll try this again next week. I'll, I'll fulfill the covenant. I'll do my end of the bargain once you get yourself right. Because that's not the way, that's not the covenant. Uh, that's not how God gives us covenant. That's not how he establishes it. And that's not what we're supposed to do with our spouse. And so if you were to do that, I'll fulfill my end of the bargain. When you fulfill your end of the bargain, uh, you guys would just wouldn't get anywhere in, a, in any relationship, Right? Because if you're both waiting for each other to take the first step, you guys are both going to be standing in the same place 10 years later, right? You are both called to take the first step. And so even though we'll look to Joshua 2, 8 through 14, although this is not a marriage covenant, we're going to see an example of, of how these types of covenants play out. And this is where we get the line, my life for yours. In Joshua 2, we're going to read 8 through 8 through 14. <clears throat> so this is when uh, Joshua and Caleb are spies in, in Jericho, and they come across Rahab, very nice young lady. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. She had hidden them. Uh, she had saved their lives from uh, the... Uh, the police at Jericho who, were, who found out about him. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. 
For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, both my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver your lives, deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And so that is an exchange, that is a covenant. They took vows, they made promises, they made a bond together that said, I'm going to save your life, you're going to save my life. In that context, there were literally lives to be saved. Joshua and Caleb uh, were hidden by Rahab so that they wouldn't get, get caught and escaped. And then, uh, and then in return, when Israel stormed Jericho, they were going to save her and her household and anybody who was in the house seeking protection. And so my life for yours, that's the basis of the covenant. And so it's not, if you give me your life, then I will give you mine. That's, again, in a contract. It lays out who will initiate. In a covenant, you both initiate. And so uh, at this time, I, want, I just want to shift a little bit and talk about a common misinterpretation because there are uh, biblical divorces. And so uh, in our Lord's teaching that we read earlier, it says, uh, everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And so what I've heard over the years as an explanation to that, in past years before I listened uh, to some better biblical teaching, I should, I should qualify that. Uh, I've heard that, well, if, if your spouse commits adultery and you just really can't handle it, then you get to divorce them. That was the explanation I'd heard for, for years, that if they commit adultery, and that's the Lord, he's saying just if it's really hard and you just can't emotionally handle it, if you can't like, forgive them, if you think about it, uh, all the time, then you get to divorce them because it's just too hard for you. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't hold up biblically. Um, it, it can only mean, and we'll look into that, that if your spouse is involved in unrepented sexual morality, refuses to stop, continues to make excuses, uh, then divorce may be an option. Otherwise, it would contradict teachings in Scripture. And so Colossians 3 13 through 14 says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Uh, the apostles' teaching doesn't make any exceptions for who you are, are to forgive. Now, in a marriage covenant, if it's ongoing, it's unrepentive, the Lord gives, gives uh, a qualification for divorce and that. But if, the, if marriage is a picture of the gospel, how we portray when our spouse sins is what we believe about the gospel. You don't get to have an option of whether you forgive them or not. You always have to forgive them. And so Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You are called to restore anyone who is caught in any transgression. And oftentimes the Lord puts your spouse there for you to be the spiritual person. They know you the best. 
Now, I couldn't imagine how hard it is with more egregious sins. But if they are confessing their sins, if they're repentive, how, how are you portraying the gospel to withhold forgiveness? Right? And, and so, essentially, the scriptures give us two reasons for divorce. One is for that unrepentive, consistent sexual immorality. And the second is when an unbeliever leaves, which we find in, in 1 Corinthians 7. And in both cases, in 1 Corinthians 7, it says that the believer, if the, if the unbeliever is willing to live with them, go ahead and live with them. How do you know uh, whether you're going to save them? But if they're willing to live with you, then continue to stay married. But if they abandon you, if they leave, you're not bound. He literally says you're not enslaved to that person, an unbeliever who leaves. And so in both cases, whether it's, it's consistent, unrepented sexual morality and whether the unbeliever leaves, in both cases, the spouse is declared an unbeliever. And the spouse is leaving the covenant and, uh, and forsaking it. And so those are the reasons we get. And has anyone ever talked with anybody about this or, or read good books on it? And then for whatever reason, the next question comes up, I was like, well, what if the spouse is like physically abusing them? The Bible doesn't tell us what to do. You're like, you're right. The Bible doesn't say if your spouse physically abuses you in that, in that phrasing, what to do, right? But it does tell us and give us instruction that in, in context that that person has committed egregious sin. Are they continuing to be unrepentive? And so I, I like to answer that, well, if a spouse... Uh, Usually you hear this about, about men. If a man hits his wife and is confronted about it, the first thing you should say is, I want you to turn yourself into the police. And they say, no, I can't do that because uh, I'll lose my job. I can't do that because, oh, then you're not repenting. I'm sorry. The, the spouse can't physically stay with you and, you, and you're going down a path of where we're going to declare you an unbeliever because you're not repenting of egregious sin. And so, for whatever reason, that, that question comes up a lot, maybe because that's common in our culture, and we do need answers to that. But the Lord allows us, the Lord gives way to people who are egregiously breaking the covenant. And so, otherwise, uh, the Lord gives us instruction that we are to restore them in, in, in any transgression. If they refuse to be restored, you have a, a bigger problem on your hand. And so you notice that it doesn't say that, when, uh, that if your spouse is an unbeliever and that's just good enough reason to break the covenant. The Lord doesn't give that. So back to Matthew 19, when the Lord says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And so Jesus is, and he says, in the beginning, it was not so. And that he allowed, he is making provisions for lawlessness. When uh, in Genesis doesn't say, here's Adam, here's Eve, you guys are joined together, you guys are covenantally unioned, and then uh, here's what you do in case you just feel like ending it. Here's your way out. He doesn't say that. He says it's not so in the beginning. This is like a prototype for marriage. When he says that Moses gave them uh, allowed them to permit certificates of divorce, it was because of their hardness of heart. Do you want to start making reasons in your mind of where your hardness of heart, how far you can go? I don't think so. I don't think that's a great way to, to uh, look at your marriage. 
And so, but he's using the first marriage as a prototype for all other marriages. And so when you divert from that, it is a perversion, right? Let's go to Genesis 1 and look at that. Let's start with Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Now, in context, this is the thousand yard, in the first chapter of Genesis up until uh, 2, 4, you get like the thousand yard overview. So it actually doesn't even say that they're married. And so if you only read Genesis 1, you're just like, I don't even know about marriage. But this is a thousand yard view. You don't even know that his name's Adam. Starting in 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. And so generally, what we get in, in the first chapters of Genesis is that the purpose is to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion or to have productive labor. And so let's turn to Genesis 2, 15 to 25, where we get the on earth view. You can kind of look at Genesis 1 as like we're viewing it from heaven. Genesis 2 is like we're getting a little bit more uh, intricate. We're getting down on the earth and viewing it that way. Genesis, 15, Genesis 2, 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever he called them, whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept... He took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, At last this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That's the first time he's uh, called Eve his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so the first thing, if you know the account of, of Genesis 1 and 2 up until this point, is that he said, these things are good. He created light and it was good. He created dry land and it was good. Every day he's saying it was good. He created man and woman naked and unashamed and it was good. But it was not good that the man was alone. This should, as you're reading, you're like, hey, God keeps saying things are good, and now something's not good. Let's take a look at that. Right? It's not good that man should be alone. And so this is the first example, this is the prototype of marriage that all other marriages should follow. 
Now, I don't think you're going to uh, now follow in principle. I don't think uh, you're going to find your wife by God fashioning a rib. But there are certain examples and principles to follow. And so that means that there's one man, one woman. He is given a task. She is given to help him. They are suitable or complement each other in that task and that they are on mission. That mission was to be fruitful and, be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. And so when the Bible gives regulations for polygamy, that's an aberration. That wasn't intended in the beginning. And so we just wouldn't have, uh, oftentimes when you, you talk to people or people or you read the Bible and you generally, like genuinely have questions like, why does the Bible allow, seem to allow in some parts for polygamy? Well, it's making laws and regulations for sin so that you just can't do whatever you want. But it's an aberration from the original. It was never intended to be that way. And you see that in, in Genesis 4 when Lamech has two wives. Lamech just had a, a philosophy, if one's good, two's better. And it's just not the case in this, in this instance, right? It's not if one wife is good, two wives is better. Let's give it a shot. It didn't go good for him. And so it's not saying that polygamy is okay. It's not part of the prototype. It's not part of, of, of God's instruction for marriage. He's making regulations for sin when sin comes in. The same thing with divorce. He's not saying it's okay to divorce your wife for any reason, but when there's hardness of hearts, when there's people who are breaking the law, there's people who don't want to follow the scriptures, we have to put stop gaps in place. And so you see this in the New Testament also. When uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul writes, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, they had like a lot of questions. One of them was, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? That seems pretty vague, like just ever. Is that in marriage context? Is that just like, uh, if you under, understand the Corinthian cultures, to Corinthianize was to fornicate, and they use that as a boastful term. It would be like our, our Las Vegas, uh, where prostitution is legal, drugs are legal, and what stays in Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Except for if you get pregnant or STDs or if you get a drug addiction or if you lose your money, well, your money will stay there. Uh, all those things... <laughs> You can get in Vegas, but won't stay in Vegas. There's a lot of things that happen in Vegas that don't stay in Vegas. It is not a refuge city. And so they, Paul had written something uh, about it is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And then verse 2 says, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And so he wasn't saying that you just, there should never be any sexual relations, not even in marriage, uh, there should be nothing. But he said, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each wife her own husband. What he doesn't give way to is, is then laying out, uh, he does lay out some rules, but he doesn't say that in each man, because they're more sexually active or more sexually tempted, uh, they could have two or three or four. It says each man uh, his own wife. And so, so some of those things are, you see even in the New Testament, they're answering questions. They're, I like to call, they're pressing it into the corners of here's the gospel. How do we apply it? What does that mean in this situation? What does that mean in this situation? Well, go back to the prototype. If it's divergent from the prototype marriage in Genesis, it is an aberration 
and it's probably unlawful. And so in Ephesians, Colossians, Titus, and 1 Peter in particular, there's a transition from theological um, um, theological verbiage and about the gospel, and, it's, and then it goes and transitions into practical. That happens in other epistles, but the focus in those epistles is then goes towards the household. Uh, how husbands are supposed to act, how wives are supposed to act, how, what are, what's the responsibilities of fathers, children obeying their parents, slaves, and, and such. And so the conclusion of those particular epistles is, if you believe the gospel in Ephesians, if you believe that God has predestined and ordained you to be holy and blameless, husbands, love your wives and wash them with the water of the word. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. If you believe the gospel, then this is what it looks like in your household. And so, um, and that's the way, it's essentially saying this is the way you give your life. This is the way you give yourself. He's not saying, husbands, make sure that your wives do this for you, right? He's saying, give yourself. The conclusion is always, this is your station in life. This is your responsibility. This is what you ought to do. I'm sure there will be um, a lot of questions in the next couple weeks about when we talk about the husband's role versus the wife's role. Um, but, uh, um, and we'll get into those because they're very clear. But essentially, God had established three governments in society, three general governments. That's the, the family, the, the church, and the state. And the family holds the ministry of education, welfare, and health. The church has the ministry of the gospel and all that entails. And the state has the ministry of justice or to bear the sword. And so God has established these, these, uh, these governments, and they're all built on on the establishment of self-government, that you're responsible for your station. In your family, husbands are responsible for this, wives are responsible for this, and, and this is how you give your life. All right, this is how you give. This is, we'll get into how husbands give themselves and what that looks like, and how wives give themselves. But the conclusion of the gospel is you pressing it into your station of life, and how do you apply that? What's my role? You should be asking, how do I give myself? How should I give myself? How do I give myself more? Right? When uh, going back to the, the example of like a, a marriage quote, well, you didn't do the dishes, well, you didn't fold the laundry, but the dinner's not ready. Right? The easiest way to avoid that is to take personal responsibility. If by chance, uh, uh, this is just totally a hypothetical situation. It's, I don't even know if this is real, if this has ever happened. But if the husband does come home frustrated with work and he irrationally is overbearing with his wife and, and comes across as grumbling and says, you said you were going to do the dishes, but you didn't do them. And instead of uh, biting back, which is what we all want to do in our flesh, if we say, yeah, you're right, I didn't. Would you forgive me? Oh, but you also, the dinner's not ready. Oh, yeah, you're right. Let me get on that. How long can someone reasonably argue and just, how long is a husband going to list off complaints for 30, 40 minutes and then not, hopefully, if they're a Christian, look back and say, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I have a complaining spirit. I'm sorry. Let me... 
let me fix that. Right? Or, or the opposite way around. Husbands, take initiatives. If you're, if, uh, uh, a lot of times when, when husbands get home from work and, and wives are relational, they just want to talk. They want to unload about the day, about the kids, about what happened. And the husband wants to, hey, I just got home from work. It's not time to work more. It's time to relax. Right? Well, when your wife does that, say, don't bite back at her because she's just doing what comes out of her nature. Say, okay, yeah, let me be prepared to listen. I'm sorry, I just got home from work. Can you give me five minutes and I will, I will come and listen to everything because I want to give myself. I want to be fully present. I want to give you all of it. And so uh, we'll look in following weeks about how that, how that plays out with, with different roles and how uh, God created men and women differently. We'll also talk about how the temptations to sin, men and women were created with equal opportunities for temptation to sin, but how they, how they live that out and how they get into sin is very different. And so, but generally the family is the ministry of education, welfare, and health, and how you do that as a, as a spouse, as a husband or wife, has ramifications in what you're called to do. But it all is established on giving yourself. And, and, and so you should be looking in, in a marriage uh, if there are general principles that God gives of this is how a marriage is ordered, but he doesn't, and those are general principles. But First Peter 4.10 says that each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. You should be looking, if you want to give yourself to your wife, you should be looking what your giftings are and how you can benefit and serve her. Wives should be looking at their giftings of how the Lord has gifted them and how they can serve their husbands because that's how God has gifted you and created you and how you can give yourself more. Always come to the relationship asking what I can give to the marriage, what I can give to this relationship more first instead of what they can give to me. And so as we come to the table, uh, let's look at Ephesians 5.1. We'll also look at Ezekiel because I've been, Ezekiel 16, such a good chapter. So Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so our Lord doesn't call us to do anything that he hasn't first done himself. Hebrews tells us that he can sympathize with every weakness. There's no, there's no sin, there's no any situation in life that our Lord can't sympathize with. And he doesn't call us to do something that he hasn't first done himself. And so we come to the table as a reminder every week that he has already given himself. We can give ourselves back to our Lord because he has initiated it. He's given himself to us. And so a vivid picture of of our relationship. We talked about this in discipleship group on, on Friday, but um, for the sake of, I would, if I just read Ezekiel 16, some of the things in there are not really appropriate, you would say, uh, for some years. But it's the analogy uh, that, that Ezekiel is using, that there was a baby that was, that was birthed and just thrown out into the field, not even cleaned up, and, and our Lord passed by and and saw that child and, and picked her up and washed her off and watched her grow up into a beautiful child or a beautiful woman. And when she reached the age of marriage, he enters into covenant and marries her. 
and, and adorns her with all these things, and then she goes and whores herself out. And then you would think, well, that's the end of the story. That's it. It's over. No, but then he then redeems her again. And so Ezekiel 16, starting at verse 59, For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember that my covenant with you in the days of your youth. I will establish you for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and I shall know, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame, when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. And so when we come to the table, it's a reminder that we didn't fulfill our end of the covenant. If we look back, we, we've sinned, we've broken it, and he is continually offering himself to us. He doesn't pull himself back. He doesn't pull his love back. He doesn't pull his covenant back because of our sin. If he, is, if he has reached out his hand and he has offered us grace and peace through Jesus Christ, he is not going to pull that back. He offers it every week at the table. So come and let's dine with Jesus Christ.